All right, everybody, welcome back to the Mindful Hunter podcast. I'm your host, as always, Jay Nickel. Uh, super excited about this week's guest. Mr. Nick Treehern is joining us, probably most widely known for his photography, but he's also a super badass hunter himself and fellow Canadian. So it always does the heart good to see kind of Canadians get their due and, and Nick's kind of doing really well these days. So um, I actually want to start this with... Um, a comment on one of your posts the other day, which I thought was particularly, uh, the timing of it was great. You did this post about the upside of social media yeah. and how you've actually met a lot of really great people. You've gone on hunts with dudes you've never met before. And it, and it got me thinking what well, shit like this wouldn't happen without, like we've never met before. Oh, I don't entirely. know you from a hole in the ground, but somebody tags you in my story. You, you, you tag me back. Boom. You know, a, a few days later, we're banging out a podcast and I think social media gets a bad rap. Sometimes none of this stuff, like all the community that goes along with hunting that we have these days, we wouldn't have any of that if it wasn't for social media. Oh, a hundred percent. It's definitely, I guess, opened up a lot of great friendships for me. Like it's been the most random thing, but I don't know. It's like anything in life. It could be negative or positive. However you want to look at it. hundred percent. You first came on rate my radar. So for the first four months of this podcast, I did everything solo. I would just like do gear reviews and surprisingly I can talk to myself for an hour for no problem. <laughs> I don't know what that says about me, but, yeah. um, and I used to do this thing called a creator of the week. And just once a week, I would give a shout out to like somebody that, that I, whose work I just really liked. And yeah. my buddy Simon came on the podcast on IG, it's backcountry bloodline to give him a bit of a shout out. And he was like, you need to check out Nick's stuff. And that's what turned me on to you. And then I gave you a shout out the following week. Um, and I was just really impressed. Like, I, I love the taste of, of your particular style, especially in like, um, I find there's a, like, there's a lot of over editing going on these days. And like, I'm mm -hmm. sure we can get into the technical components of photography later on, but I like your stuff because it definitely has a style to it, but I yeah. wouldn't, it's not over edited. It's not oversaturated it's not in your face like a lot of the other online stuff tends to be and I, I really appreciated that yeah definitely um i guess it's probably because i don't target social media likes like a lot of those guys that are oversaturated over sharpened whatever that's all they're looking for is a like and a share but like i'm selling these to brands retailers you name it and that's just not what you see in the mainstream marketing so yeah, that's a really good point. Okay, so let's wind everything back. You're you're a PG boy. Have you is that where you were born and grown up, or did you uh, that no. later on in life? I'm from Southern Alberta originally. I've been up in PG for about eight years now. Okay, okay. Yeah. So, how did hunting hunting come into your life originally? Is this a family thing for you? No, I actually come more from an anti side of the world than a hunting side. So I actually kind of very short version archery gym class like junior high everyone got to try out the gym teacher's compound bow and i was hooked so i got my first job literally so i could buy a compound and that led into a couple teenagers in the local bow store talking me into coming hunting one day and first hour of my hunting career i arrowed a velvet mule deer buck and that was the, the setting the hook kind of thing been yeah, man, it's pretty hard to since. turn away after that. Yeah, no, it's pretty fortunate. And then 
yeah, like a few years later, like right out of high school, straight up to the Yukon to go experience all that working for an outfitter. And it's just, yeah, snowballed since then. So how did that, I'm always intrigued with guys who went out for outfitters, especially like, give us some context. What year would it have been when you went up there? Early 2000s, like Oh one, maybe. Yeah. So even that's like pre-social media, pre-everything. I'm always really impressed how guys, how did that whole thing come about? You just picking up the phone and calling guys? 100%. I called tons of outfitters. I like Brian Martin and like all those Coleman up in the Yukon, Tim Mervin, the guy I ended up working for, um, Jim Holes, another famous one that just endlessly hounded everyone. Like I wanted it. I wanted to hunt. I wanted to experience it. Like anything to be hunting more. And yeah, I got a job kind of, I didn't even actually go to graduation because I took off to the Yukon. So yeah, as soon as I could do it, I was gone and running. But and what you just started as a packer or thing. how did that happen? Yeah, definitely. Okay. And then kind of moved up from there luckily and quickly, but. And you said yeah, it was rather short lived. Yeah. I, in the first year, like I guided, uh, that fall in the Yukon. And then I did one spring of spring bears in Alberta. And that just solidified. I never wanted to do it again. So it was very short-lived, but then I just jumped into the oil patch essentially. And same thing, just where can I get the most money so I can hunt the most? (laughs) Right. And did that for a decade before chasing this. I think it takes a very special person to be a guide. Uh, My background, I've done a bunch of stuff, but I was a personal trainer for a long time because I love training. And I I was also a snowboard instructor because I love snowboarding. And I learned very quickly terrible jobs. I hate teaching <laughs> and I hate being a personal trainer just because yeah. I like doing the thing. Doesn't mean I like want to lead other people to do the thing. And I, yeah. like, I think some of the best guides aren't even really that into their own hunting, especially if you look at older dudes, yeah. there's, there's a lot of guides that later on in life don't even hunt that much. And I think just because you're a good hunter, you're definitely not necessarily a good guide. A hundred percent. Like I know the thing for me, um, I guess the demographic he was targeting was the very, very wealthy, especially back then. Right. And like factory owners, whatever. And these guys would just be the most condescending people to me, like paying me to carry their gun in their day pack. Cause they're like, they're not hunters. They were just there to have a sheep on their wall to brag to their other billionaire friends. And it kind of just put a sour taste in my mouth. Like it wasn't really against guiding. It was just the clientele that ruined it for me. Yeah, I could see that, especially up there, man. Like you're talking sixty, seventy, eighty thousand dollars sheep hunts and all the rest of it. I would think like a four thousand dollar bear hunt in BC, you attract a different yeah. people. I go down to Arizona almost every year and I do a guided coos hunt. It's like mm-hmm. super laid back. It's like three grand, and it's like everybody's just like a regular dude. Yeah. So I definitely super chill, hundred percent. And I just focus. Yeah. It's like I don't have to organize my food. I'm totally yeah, totally now. He picks me up at the airport, and by the time you add all that shit up. I'm like, maybe an extra 1500 bucks I'd save by doing it myself. And I don't have to worry about anything. It's like, yeah, yeah. I'll, uh, yeah, sign me up. No brainer. Yeah, totally. Okay. So, so what type of hunting was it for you when it first started? Because I know there's been this like explosion of backpack hunting and everybody forgets like there's, there are other styles. Like yeah. what type of, was it, has it always been archery for you? Do you do some rifle too? Do you like going in deep? Like what's your drug of choice um to this day it's getting away from where anyone else will be 
Um, like, yeah, I started on the prairies, bow hunting mule deer. That always will have a place in my heart, but mountains are everything. I and, just went to, uh, where were we? Well, I was in Southern Alberta hunting mule deer for the first time last fall. And like that, you know, that coolie terrain, like mm-hmm. flat as a pancake and then yeah. like big, steep canyons, big, giant bucks, yeah. super hard hunting. Yeah. Like, and I'd never hunted anything. And I'm a, I'm a mountain boy at heart too, but like doing, I was like, I could get behind this. It's definitely, oh, it's awesome. Like you're in the truck every morning. It doesn't have that like kind of hardcore yeah. country feel to it, but that was a beat. And I came home and unsuccessful. Yeah. And like anybody, there too. oh man, anybody <laughs> who can bring something home, like yeah. I, I tip like, my hat to you. That's tough. Yeah. Enough. That's the stuff I grew up hunting. And then like, okay. I go back every year, like all my friends are back. Well, a lot of my friends are back there. Like this year I went on a rifle hunt, same kind of terrain, the big river breaks in Southern Alberta. Yep. And I ended up rifling a 180 mule deer and a 140 whitetail. And it's like, yeah, I love that. Like it's as close to the mountains for like passion as I'll get, but it's yeah. just different too. Like not too many hunts are going on late November in the mountains too. So just switch yeah. gears and soak it all in. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, okay. So then we, we go to the patch and is this kind of like bust your ass eight, nine months of the year, trying to hunt three, four t- months out of the year type of deal. Yeah. More like 11 and one, but yeah. <laughs> okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Hunt hard for that one and get it done. Go back to work. But that same thing, you it all revolved around hunting even then. And it was a great stepping stone and there's no way in hell I could have done what I'm doing today without like the savings it afforded me. Yeah. But yeah, it's just, it wasn't it either. It just took a little longer than the guiding thing to figure out. Right. Yeah. I do think that's a wise insight though. I, I, that's one of the things like I don't have my professional job has nothing to do with hunting. Yeah. I'm, I'm really lucky. I'm, you know, successful by most standards. And that affords me the ability to pursue my passion. And I wish more people like the young guys, I, the, I just want to do this thing and not worry about money and all the rest. And it's like more often than not, you'd be more successful. If you realize the thing that you're, the things that you're going to want to love to do in life are going to cost money. And yeah. is there an oil patch for you? Or for me, it was yeah. tree planting. Like, yeah. is there something you can go kill yourself doing? That's going to you do that for a couple of years and that's going to put you in a position where then you have some choice and some freedom to pursue yeah. your passion with some resources. Cause that's a, especially if we're talking like hunting photography for me, the videography, like the shit's not cheap, man. No. Yeah. It's one thing, I guess I get a lot of flack from a lot of people. Like when I say it on podcasts or on my pages or whatever, I wouldn't recommend anyone getting into this profession. Like no one. Right. I would do exactly what you said go become an accountant, become whatever. Like you are better off doing that. You'll have retirement, you'll have benefits, you'll have medical, like all that stuff and still be able to afford to go to Arizona every year, like yourself. Whereas 99% of the creative people in that space, shy of getting paid to go document these trips could never afford those things. They couldn't afford a $10,000 hunt for most. There's exceptions to every rule, but, and then things like retirement, things like almost all of them that I'm friends with, don't own their own house. Like there's big downfalls to chasing the dream, right? I think, I think Randy Newberg and Jason Matzinger are really good examples. Newberg was uh, an accountant and financed yeah. all of his, he was self self-funded like the whole nine yeah. yards. 
Matt Singer, I think, was an electrician, like his family. Yeah, so was I. Yeah. So and, <laughs> yeah. and the whole thing was so and look at those. Now they're in a position, much like yourself, where yeah. they are able to pursue their passions full time. Yeah. I think some people luck out. Don't get me wrong. Some oh, 100%. I think that's the problem is the romantic grand slam. You go yeah. film one hunt, it blows up, and then like you're the next guy, you know. But the math is not on your side for that no. particular like, scenario. Having, well, I'm almost pushing a decade doing this full time now. And like, it's not about even a viral project or like blowing up briefly. Like, it's all about relationships and their long term investments. Like, to know the photo editors, the marketing managers, to get the work. Like, yeah, you might get lucky and land one, but same thing to have a long term career out of it is just a lot more work than people think. This is, this is interesting, and I want to dig into that a little bit deeper um, in, in a little bit. So that's a good segue, though. When does the photography become a meaningful thing for you? What do you mean by that? Okay. When, was it, when did it inject itself into the hunting, or was it always there? Or when did you start to okay. think of yourself as a photographer? Like, this is part of my identity. Yeah, this is kind of out there again. Um, when I was in the patch, I had a four day off window yep. or whatever it was four or seven. So I bought a camera then like my first day or two off that shift, I ended up quitting my profession, my job in the patch and diving full time into it, like three days into my next shift or four days into my next shift. So I went from never owning a camera, not knowing how to use it to quote unquote photographer in like a couple weeks. That's hilarious. Do you remember what camera it was? I was a Nikon D, maybe like 3100, like the most ghetto POS right. <laughs> available. Like I didn't know anything about it. I upgraded like not even a month later to like top end stuff once I figured out how shitty it was. But And was it outdoor stuff like right out of the gate? Like what wildlife. Was... Okay. So the first four years out of the 10 I've been doing it were strictly wildlife in the hunting industry. Okay. And then the last six have been pretty much exclusively hunting and fishing. Okay. Yeah. And how did you, like, how were you able to go from zero to one, having never taken a photo to getting somebody to actually pay you for one of your photographs? So that's kind of where the oil patch, like making those financially smart, smart choices came in that first year between buying all the gear, like big wildlife lenses are 10, 15, 20 K a piece. Like it's not cheap. So it cost me probably a hundred grand to get into this, to be able to buy the gear and sustain myself long enough to where I was not in the red each month. Right. Yep. So it was probably close to a calendar year before like sales started no shit. happening regularly. Like it was a huge investment and a giant gamble having never taken a photo. Like I sucked at the start. I'll be the first to say it, but yeah, it all happened like on social media is how I got my first sale. I was posting some elk photos I took and a random editor I followed just like kind of how we follow each other, random hunting page reached out and they're like, Hey, like that's a cool shot. Submit some. And that was my first sale. And then like, Holy crap. Started throwing them every which angle and got into Boone and Crockett's magazine and like a bunch of local Canadian ones, outdoor Canada, Western sportsman at the time before it canceled. And yeah, just kind of all snowballed from there. Okay. So I'd like to dive into a little bit of like your own philosophy on photography, and I'm sure it's evolved 
o- yeah. over the years. So you can kind of dice it up that way as, as well. But how do you think about photography? And maybe if I can add some more context, like, are there any principles that you've developed over time that have served you well, or even a mindset you have when you're, when you're going out on a shoot? And if that's a bit vague, let me know, but I'm just trying to get at that mindset you're in when you're either going on a shoot or planning a shoot. Yeah. Um, shy of the assignments where it's like a straight shot list and that's just plug and play. When I have creative freedom, it's capture everything. Like every little detail you think is unimportant, you think is boring. Take that photo, start snapping 10 angles of the stuff you've never seen. Cause it's surprising how many companies they won't be your like Epic catalog covers, magazine cover shots or whatever billboards, but they're filler for catalogs. And that actually really is a lot of content that's needed out there. Like a midday nap or a close up of you doing up a buckle on your pack or like food dripping off a spoon as you're eating it. Like just the weird angles that people don't think like just be different. Do not try to replicate what you see on Instagram because that's what everyone goes for. And that's what a lot of photographers have as their entire portfolio. And that's great, but that only covers a fraction of the content that's needed. That's very interesting. Yeah. I like that. Um, yeah, I was having a, another conversation with another photographer the other day, and I realized one of my own failings is that I'd only ever been, or recently, I've been focusing on catching milestone moments, Mm -hmm. but, and it was funny because he said something about the transitions and I used to practice jujitsu and there's this like saying is jujitsu is what happens in, 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 it's better in Brazilian, but, or Portuguese, but Brazilian is what jujitsu is what happens in between. Yeah. So it's like, there's one position and then there's another position, but the actual art happens between those two positions. And it got me thinking about photography that like, some of the great shit I love is like the stuff in between and it's yep, like exactly not the great Epic one thing. It's like, yeah, yep. those little tie together moments that transition yep. you from one thing to another. Oh, entirely. Like even that throwing a bag of chips in the grocery store shot, like I've sold stuff like that to manufacturers. It's like 90% of videographers, photographers, like they don't capture those little weird things. So, uh, let's say you're doing a, a, something for a bigger brand and it's going to be a, a longer hunt. And let's say they, they leave the kind of arc kind of up to you. Mm-hmm. When you're looking at something like that, are you pretty prescriptive? Like, okay, I can see these are the kind of things I'm going to be wanting to get on day one through three. Like, do you have an overarching shot list slash plan or is it more, I'm just going to go and see what happens and just document and capture while I'm out there. So even on like a 10 day hunt, let's say I try to shoot every day, like I'll break my leg and have to submit one day as 10. Okay. Like I want to have a full photo package to deliver each day of shooting. Okay. So it's not like, okay, I'll shoot scenics day one through three tight stuff day four through six. Like it's, I want absolutely everything every day. And that's how I look at it. That's interesting. Okay. I like that. Um, let's segue into a more technical part of the conversation. What's your current setup? Um, for hunting and fishing, pretty much all Nikon mirrorless. Okay. I have Z6s and Z7s. So 
Yeah, just a healthy mix of both. Um, as far as lenses, pretty much everything from 14 mil to 200, I pack on every single trip. That's so that'd be the 14 to 24, 24 to 70. Usually pack either a 60 or 100 mil macro lens and then the 70 to 200. And that's every single trip, no matter what, no matter where. And then if needed, I'll throw a bigger, like 500 mil wildlife lens in if those are the shots that are required from the customer. Or like for fishing, I'll throw in a second wide angle for the underwater housing so I can use both underwater and above water at the same time with the same lens. Um, yeah, stuff like that. And so the next question, because everybody always wants to know like what's a good starter setup. And I think it's a terrible question because a starter setup for one guy could be 10 grand, just depending on where you're at in life. Yeah. Maybe a better question would be like, what are some principles or, or, or how should the beginner think about gear? Like, obviously they can't start with all of those lenses. Is there a good place to start? And then what's your second and third? And do you prioritize glass or the body? What are your thoughts on that? So I think the biggest flaw in everyone starting out is thinking gear matters. It doesn't, it doesn't whatsoever. Take your iPhone and just start crushing it on a trip. Like I have sold iPhone shots that I've taken just while out not even working and been able to sell them. Like the act of capturing the moments is more important than what you're using to do it with. So as far as cameras, do whatever is affordable to you, whether that's a baseline Sony Nikon Canon does not matter. Like once you get into it a little more or need to deliver things that are like capable of being a building wrap or a billboard or like huge pieces, which most people will never need to do. Mm-hmm. Then these top end cameras and lenses matter, but the package lenses that come even on the cheapest kits from any of the manufacturers is more than enough to blow up for your wall or share on Instagram or just to have for yourself. I think that's really good advice. I think the other thing, and I get more gear questions than anything. Yeah. It's like, you're going to have to buy stuff to figure out what you don't like. And everybody's always like, what's the one pair of boots I should own? What's the one shelter that's going to do everything for me in every single situation? And it's like, it don't work like that. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, you do this long enough, you're going to have three shelters. You're going to have four pairs of boots. You're going to have half a dozen lenses. Like the the point is, yeah, like it's funny. I just bought a new lens. I bought, I'm a Sony guy. Yeah. They just came out with a new G Master 35 mil F1.4. And I'm already... Already kind of wishing I'd gone with like a, like a wide zoom instead yeah. of the, cause typically I only bring one lens. So I solo everything. So yeah. it's just me. So I'm like going as light as possible. So I run a 24 to 70. Yeah. Um, and I used to just run a flat 24. Everything I did was in 24. Um, but I wanted the 24 to 70 only goes to F 2.8. And I wanted to kind of start beefing up the more artistic side of my photography game. So more shallow depth of field. So I wanted something with a bigger aperture. So I got the 35 mil and I'm still going to totally play it, but it's hilarious. Like it literally hasn't been sitting there for more than a week. And I'm already like, I either kind of want to swap that out or I kind of want to go by, add another piece to the kit. Like I don't yeah. think it ever ends. Yeah. No, it's, I guess the same as anything. Like there's no straight answer again. Like I bought camera bodies and sold them a week later. Like you could read all the specs, you could talk to you, talk to me, talk to whoever, but it's such a personal thing like boots, like packs, like 
clothing companies, like camera gear is no exception to the rule. And you, once you know, you just know what you like. So on that note, what is it that you like about Nikon specifically? Um, first and foremost, every single person out there knows, well, whether you watch Drake or Adam Foster or any of them, Sony's go down from moisture left, right, and center. Right. Everyone talks up Sony, but I have yet in a decade to have a camera body go down from moisture. Okay. Where Sony cannons freeze up all the time and doing hunting and fishing, like you're out in the shit, the weather's going to suck. So weather sealing hundred percent. Um, when I actually first started, I reached out to a few people just to see like between when I bought that cheap camera and tossed a whole bunch of money at it. And a couple of people said Nikon image quality is superior. And I just listened to the, and those were not photographers. Those were the people buying the photos mm, that said that's that. an interesting way to go about it. Yeah. Like I don't care personal opinion because every photographer is saying different, but I care about the end user when it comes to making a living what they want. So, yeah. And then I guess at this point, it's just too damn expensive to change. Like sure. when you have three huge wildlife lenses that are 50 K and four bodies and seven small lenses, underwater housings, it's just, as long as it's not dead last and it can compete, I'll never change. I think it's also comfort. Like there's something to be said about proficiency yeah. um, and knowing how, especially with what we do, like there's a lot of run and gun stuff and you need to be able to switch things on the fly really comfortably. And, mm-hmm. you know, like they just switched the whole Sony menu, which I think is a good thing in the long run. But yeah. there's like three weeks of me, like not having Learning any curve. idea where anything is. Right. And it's yeah. just like trying to Google every single time I'm trying to do anything. Yeah. The first body I ever owned, and this is at least 15 years ago. And I don't even remember what, what it was. It was a D, I want to say 7,000 or 700. I can't remember. Yep. It was maybe like a $1,500 camera. Like yeah, it was okay. the 7,000. Okay, D7000. That's what it was. And that was the first actual nice camera I ever had. And I've, I've done Nikons. I've done Canons. And now I'm in Sony. And, I, you know, I think they're all tools. And you could make arguments. I think people get way too... It's the same with everything in the hunting industry as well. People get way too, I don't want to say too brand loyal. I think brand loyalty is a good thing. If a company treats you right, you should treat them right. But not, like, I don't give a shit that you shoot Nikon. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's great if you like it and you take good pictures. Fuck, I don't care, man. Shoot with whatever you want to shoot. Like, that's why I liked your point about the the iPhone camera too. Is that like the gear, the what? Your capability should not be dependent upon the gear that's in your kit. Like it should, yeah. it should. Oh, they're not dependent. That. Like if you think they're dependent on your gear, like you're wrong. You haven't been doing it long enough to figure it out. Like there's wedding photographers, for example, in New York charging $20,000 for iPhone weddings. And that's all they shoot. But it's the person behind the lens. Like if you have the eye for it, you could take a better photo with anything than a guy without the eye for it with a $30,000 setup. Yeah. Okay. So this is, I hadn't thought of this before, but you mentioned earlier, your target demographic is your clients, not necessarily social media writ large. Yeah. So as far as your workflow goes, um, I'm interested a little bit in how you actually edit photos and what are you thinking 
like what's the look you're going for when you when you do up like a like a book like i'm assuming you get hired to go out on a shoot they want some kind of like package or portfolio of the the shot list like how do you approach that element once you're actually back from the show from the shoot yeah so basically when i get back from a shoot i'll throw them all in lightroom um I don't do any heavy edits ever other than when I'm just bored and want to throw the odd one on Instagram. Like a client will never see a heavy edit or black and white or any of that typically unless they ask for it. But, um, so I'll get back, say I have eight, 10,000 images. I'll quickly rip through. It takes some time, but like on the surface level, rip through and just flag the ones that catch my eye. Like, okay. The, staging like whether they're blinking or that sweat's dropping in the frame or whatever it may be it's just whatever catches my eye and that will immediately take it from say 10,000 to 500 okay just for the ones that stand out from there and this is like a gut check almost like you're not deliberating each photo if something catches your no. eye you'd like give it a like, five star like it's got to stand yeah, out. i'll literally fly through these things like yeah maybe give them two three seconds an image like i'm not ripping into them at all for like, it has to just be like that. Wow. Like, yep. I think that's the one like, yep. I know that'll sell. Yep. And then after I have those 500, I'll knock it down again by maybe taking 30 seconds of photo or a minute of photo for the next 500 and really zoom in on the sharpness on the eye on whatever I want that focal point to be in the scene. Um, like the little composition, whether there's twigs or whatever in the way, because I, I'm not a heavy editor. Like I don't Photoshop images. I won't remove trees and crap to make it look better. Like that's just not who I am. So if there's stuff like that, it'll get the punt too. And that'll usually knock it from 500 to say 200 images. And then from there, I'll go like with each contract, it's different. Say I'll have to deliver 40, 50, whatever amount of images. I'll go through those 200 from there and pick whichever I feel that brand's goals would be met with because they're all solid at that point. Those 200 are all sellable. Like I could picture them on a billboard or magazine cover or whatever. Like I believe they're good. And then knock that down to the final submission of 30, 40 that the client gets or whatever the number may be. Each one's different, but. And this is just more of a personal curiosity. When you submit a book, did they get like your mild edits and the raws? I never give raws. Okay. I have one client and one client only that it's take it or leave it. We want the raws or we're not hiring you. Okay. And other than that, I've never had a client want a raw file because like, that's why you don't edit those crazy edits. Right. You want to give them a photo that they don't have to dick with, okay. like where it's already color corrected. You're using a calibrated monitor to match like the actual colors, not kind of bush league where they have to tweak it and adjust the warmth and adjust the sharpness because you didn't like you try to deliver a finished product that it goes into their folder then out to publication okay this is this is a perfect segue it's kind of funny my wife owns a magazine so i know a lot about on the writing end of the spectrum what an editor is looking for like why mm -hmm. you would be somebody that she's got people that aren't even the best writers but she'll work with them time and time again because they give her things that are easy for her to work with like Bingo. the editing that is, is on point the topic is in line with what she originally pitched so how, like, what is most, one of the most impressive things is your client list is like pretty much all of the big hitters in the space Yep. and you, you have long lasting relationships. So, cause I know what the young guys are going to say, how do I do this for a living? And what I'm trying to 
tell people is like, well, what type of person would you want to work with? Because that's yeah. the type of person that these people are going to work with. Yeah. What type of recommendations do you have? Or are there principles? Like how do you a provide product that they, that go like, Oh, I want that guy's product again. And B, yeah. how do you be a person that somebody's like, I want to work with that guy again. Yeah. And there's like, I know everyone's looking for the cut and dry formula. There isn't one. I know everyone wants the quick and easy way to do it, but that's almost an impossible question to ask or answer, unfortunately. Yep. Um, like some of my longest standing clients, like I've pretty much never had a client that doesn't turn into a repeat client. Like some of the longest standing ones, like Kafaru for answer, for example, like everyone knows I'm like killer backpacks. Yep. I started out long before I ever, like, I didn't hit him up to be like, Hey, pay me for photos. Like that's not the thing to do. It all started. I was bullshitting with Aaron. Like, Hey, what packs do you think? Like, I'm going to buy some of your stuff. Like kind of, he throws his phone number out there for everyone. Right. Yeah. Like well-known he's coming on. Then, tomorrow. Yeah. Right on. Yeah. So that turned into, well, you know what? Like I follow you, like you're doing some cool stuff. I'll give you the guide discount or whatever it was he offered. I'm like, cool, sick, man. Like I wasn't expecting that. Like I was, I'm ready to throw down my credit card. I don't care. I think your pack's the best. So I'm buying one one way or the other. Yep. And then it came time to like throw the order in. He's like, yeah, just call me when it's time and I'll put it in. This is before he was CEO and had a whole mountain of shit on his plate. But yeah. And then put in the order. I was ready to buy three complete packs and frames like myself, full cash price, like, Hey, this is what I want. I go to give him my credit card number at the end. He's like, Oh no, don't worry about it. I'm like, Oh, like you sure? Like here, take my number. I don't care. Like, I just want this shit. And like that, I think sh- you can ask him. I don't know. But in my opinion, that showed him like, I'm not just there for a handout. Like I didn't even, I wasn't trying to show him value at that point. It's just like, I actually believe in you. Like those are the companies I like to work with is the ones I actually love, actually believe in. And it's something that a lot of people chasing the content game overlooked. What that did, ready to throw down four grand Canadian in packs, turned into hell, I don't even know how long we've been working together now, years. And it's stuff like that that sets you apart, sets you ahead. It's when you shop yourself out to every single brand in a category, like packs, let's say, like hit up Stone Glacier, Axo, Everly Stock, blah, 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 Mystery Ranch, them all in the same week, all with the same pitch. It's like, this industry is too small for crap like that. Yeah. And it gets you nowhere in the long run, but it kind of goes back to like being able to not need, well, you need the income, but not need the income, like be able to do without getting a client in every category. And that's what allows you to get ahead in the long run. Dude, I love it, man. I get asked all the time, like, oh, how come you're not sponsored? And it's like, well, yeah. hey, I, 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 and I don't want to say this to be pompous, but like, I don't need an extra couple hundred bucks. Like, that's not going to change the quality of my life. Mm-hmm. And I like to be able to do whatever I want. So I'm going to yeah. shoot a film how I want to shoot. I'm going to use the gear that I want to use. And since starting the podcast, one of the things that I get the most positive feedback on is that like, I'll review anything. Like I don't, I'm not obligated to like wear one person's clothes or, and the pack might be the one area where like, I am a diehard Kafaru guy and I'm not interested in trying any other packs. And they are, in my opinion, the best pack you manufacture. Yeah. You and me both. It's like, like that story is what it is. Yeah. I don't even think there's a debate (laughs) to be had. 
Yeah. Um, but, and, but I say that because I've worn the pack. I've had a fulcrum for the last four years, yeah. put like 60, 70 days a year on it. Yeah. And the thing is a tank and yeah. I can put 120 pounds in it and it feels like 90. And that's yeah. the, you know, I keep getting into this debate with people about ultralight packs and it's like, what's a yeah. hundred pounds feel like Yeah, if you're trying to save a pound and a hundred pounds feels like 120. You're making yeah. the wrong decision. Yeah, no, they're, they're insanely tough. Like my original crater, like I got the crater before the crater was released. Okay. So it's seen a lot of use and I've had over a hundred big game animals and it and still wow. looks good as new. Yeah. Like tell me another pack on the market that can do that without stretching seams, blowing zippers. Like there just isn't in my opinion. No, they're tanks. And yeah. I do, I don't go in for the whole fall of the tribe thing, but like, I like Frank and Aaron. Like I like the vibe of that company. Like they yeah. tend to express opinions similar to my own. And it's like, I sleep good at night knowing that my money's going in their pockets. And I can't say yeah. the same about all of the other, even some of the companies that do make some really nice stuff. I'm just like, eh, yeah, totally. I don't really sync with, with your philosophies on things. And I think we yeah. vote with our money these days. So, yeah. um, but I really like what you said about that. Cause I've heard Aaron complain about it. Like dudes will hit them up for, for bro deals or sponsorships. And like, you, you haven't even bought a pack from us. Like you've never yeah. actually used our shit. Like yeah. why on earth would you, would I give you something when you have never? And I think that's the message to the younger guys is like, and I don't want to make it cheesy brand building speak, but like show some faith and deliver some value and, and don't be thinking about the end game from the beginning. Just do what yeah. you want. And, and, and anyways, yeah. Yeah. It's funny. Cause like you use the term end game. That's, the quickest way to not have an end game. Like if you just go around with your hand out, like you're entitled to get shit for nothing. <laughs> yeah. Even if you have a hundred thousand followers, you shouldn't walk around with your hand out. Like I'm sure oh. you can, but it's going to burn you. You're not going to have a long-term game. Yeah. I have been, and again, I, I'm, you know, I'm not of any real importance or significance, but I'm lucky enough now that a couple brands ship some stuff over every time. And I have a couple deals where if, if yeah. I need some stuff, I just send an email and they, send me their stuff and there's no written agreements. They don't, yeah. ex I don't have to like do X amount of posts. If I get something and I don't like it and I want to say, I don't like it, that's okay too. I mean, I'm not going to be rude, but, yeah. um, and that all happened just because of just like, I never instigated any of that stuff. Like I just yeah. did what I do, used what I used, said what I yeah. said. And, and then somebody like reached out and he's like, Oh, do you want a little bit of, you know, you're wearing yeah. it anyways, you're going on this thing. I'm like, yeah, sure. Why not? Yeah. Um, and that, yeah, I think the more organic approach, yeah, I think is better in the long, in the long. Yeah. You're right, it totally. is a small industry, man, and it's like, and everyone are, changes from company to company to company. Like, right. who was with Swaro last week or last year is now with Leica, and who is with Leica is now with Leopold. And it's like they're all buddies too. Like they go around at trade shows, all shoot the shit and have beer with beer with each other. It's like everyone knows, like if. Someone, or if you screwed someone, it gets around quick. Yeah. Like very quick. Okay. So on that note, let's, let's transition a little bit. Cause I want to be cognizant of time and I've kept you almost 40 <laughs> minutes already. Um, I'd like to end with a bit of a user Q and a, but before that, I want to pick your brain about some gear. Yeah, totally. Um, so my next big hunt coming up is, um, well, I'm going, I'm actually coming up your way in about a week and a half to do spring bear, uh, with my buddy, Jeff Lander, maybe an hour yep. and a half outside of, yep. uh, I know his exact area. Yeah. So I love it up there, man. I, yeah, yeah. I, I, I can't wait. 
And obviously he's been hit hard like everybody else without being able to have any clients yeah. come up. So he's like, yeah, you want to come knock down some bears? I'm like, yeah, I, I definitely want to come <laughs> knock down some bears. That hunt to me, I was just saying to Lander this morning, feels like cheating because it's like all my other hunts, it's like, I'm stressed. I'm anxious. There's gear lists. And it's like, am I yeah. going to find anything? And it's like, man, black bear up North. It's like, they're going to be all over the place and it's going to be yeah. fun. And it's, that's the other thing I'm, tr- I'm trying to wrap my head around now. It's okay to have fun hunts too. Like they don't yeah. all have to be crazy. You know, they don't oh, all have hundred percent. Yeah. Like a lot of guys try to make things like spring bear, like the most epic shit of life, but you got to call it spade a spade too. <laughs> yeah. And that's funny. Now that I'm thinking too, about your like, come at it from all angles. I'm sure there's room for that kind of content in the space. Like not every company is a, a Kafaru or a La Sportiva or something built around hardcore, right? Like yeah. there's more fun loving, like I'm thinking like Coleman or Camp yeah. Chef. Like these but are more even like- a perfect example of that. Even Kafaru has bought photos from me bear hunting around PG. Right. Like even with the most hardcore, like you put a dude full draw on a black bear, even on the side of a gravel road, which is how pretty much everyone hunts them up here. 100%. And there's still a place for it. Yeah. So yeah. even with the most epic brands and mountainous and whatever, that just kind of proves you need a well-rounded diversity of content. Yeah. So after the bear hunt, I'm, I'm doing my first sheep hunt. And it's yeah. kind of funny that it's my, because what I love is the backcountry, And I almost don't know. I think it's because I got so enamored with elk and archery yeah. elk in the rut that September was just elk every year. And when you do that, I got a wife and I got a kid. So it's like going away in August or late September for sheep was just never, but with mm-hmm. the border closed and everything else. Anyways, long story short, doing my first sheep hunt this year. Yeah. Super excited about it. But I'm also using, you know, for instance, this conversation is an opportunity to, you know, pick up on what other people have learned and stuff. So what's your, what's your own gear philosophy? And if you've got any like recommendations or tips or, or lesson learned, like fly in 12 days, three dudes, Northern Rockies, it's like your stereotypical yep. kind of, kind of backcountry sheep hunt what's your kind of approach just for gear and prep and stuff like that with something like that yeah i guess for gear like we all know the stick light all that stuff that's crammed down our throats um yeah there's no question that's important but the biggest thing i found like i used to be that guy like counting every ounce and it kind of was when I got into photographing hunts that I've got away from that since I'm packing like 30 extra pounds of shit anyway for all my camera gear that like, what is a few pounds more for comfort? So I started packing things like a Helinox chair, right? Like that has been the biggest game changer period to my mountain hunting. Like you're not sitting on a rock, your ass isn't getting wet, sitting on the moss. Like, yep. You can glass from comfortably for much longer periods of time with a one pound chair. Or sitting around camp in the rain, not having to be wet or just whatever. Little stuff like that. Um, Like, yeah, the whole food thing, trying to stand or whatever. I just gave up on that entirely. It's like, I carry what I want to eat, period. Because the morale booster it brings is more important than you having the lightest food out there and your morale being garbage and throwing in the towel early as a result. So... 
things like well, Snyder's like butthole sandwiches, the bagel, yeah. peanut butter, honey, and bacon. Like those things are not light, but I'll pack 14 of them up a mountain. They're delicious. Why? Too. Because like they're a motivational booster. Like, yeah. The taste of bacon is a game changer on day 10. <laughs> yeah. So I just would never get caught up in all the stuff you read on all the forums, all the pages, all the magazines about the stereotypical view of what you need to be a mountain hunter. Cause really if you're packed 60 pounds, what's the difference between that and 65, 68? Like if you can't pack those extra five, six, seven pounds, you shouldn't be mountain hunting. Cause what are you going to do when you kill something? Like if that little bit of weight will actually detrimentally affect your hunt. Yeah. You're probably yeah, not in the place to be there. hundred percent. The example I give to people is the sleeping pad I use now weighs a half a pound more than the first sleeping pad I ever bought, which is a 50% increase. Like the first one yeah. was a pound. Yeah. It, it might've been less actually. It was, yeah. it was 12 ounces, Neo Air x Lake, Cause that's what everybody buys. Cause yeah. the latest one, it's like, I'm 255 pounds. And <laughs> it's like yeah. sleeping on a Neo Air x Lake is like sleeping on a bed sheet. <laughs> like it's oh, like, 100%. there's nothing and it's crinkly and it's, yeah. But like, that's what, that's what the hardcore, hardcore guys do. And yeah. ju- it finally last year, I switched over to this big Agnes Q core. It's SLX. like a pound and a half. The SLX man. Yeah. That's what I run to same Dude, thing. Like it's amazing. I like the accordion foam oh, thermarest. That's like yes. what people use for butt pads now. Yeah, exactly. To that. And it's like four inches thick. It's like, that's it's like the perfect on example bed, of man. comforts that will just make you grind it out. Like those yeah. little things are worth it. Yeah, totally. Totally. Or even um, like my tent is a big one that a lot of guys mock me for. Like I don't share tents with dudes typically. Yep. And like, I want my space at the end of the night or if we're stuck in it for 10 days of rain, like hell no. But I run a two man big Agnes, but with the big vestibule, like the okay. GT or whatever it's called, like that vestibule list, the size of the tent. So I can essentially sleep six guys in my one man tent, <laughs> but yeah. why? I just want the space. Like I want to be able to sprawl out and have my gear spread out everywhere and Things like that is just worth it. Like I've been in the tents where they touch either sides of my shoulder and I'm six two, so my head's pressing on one end, my feet's pressing on the other. It's like I did it for so long. It's just why. Like, there's literally no benefit when that tent may have been three pounds and this one's four point five. It's a like, no brainer. I'd rather have luxury and an extra pound and a half. Yeah. I think those are those are wise. Those are wise words. Okay. Let's um let's jump over. Sorry, I saved these questions. You have I think you have some funny friends on Instagram because I threw that up and I got some like kind of weird questions. It's like this sounds like somebody who 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 knows them. Is the mustache a political statement? Uh we can oh, it's gone now. Sorry. Yeah, I was gonna say I don't <laughs> I don't I don't see a I don't see a mustache. Um so this guy wants to know, and actually I meant to bring this up because it is bear season and I read somewhere that spring bears, one of your favorite hunts. Yeah. What's your favorite way to cook bear? I honestly make it almost entirely into burger. Like, it has to be well done for obvious reasons. So like, I'm not going to do steak or stir fry or any of that crap because I don't like well done. Yeah. So it usually gets, I double grind it fine. And that makes up a bulk of my burger supply per year. Do you put any fat in it? No. Or you just grind it? Okay. Yeah, just straight bear. The only other thing I've done, I did have a butcher make me up uh, hams once. Mm-hmm. And that was delicious. But when I looked up how to do it myself, 
we're moving in a couple of weeks, but right now I'm in a townhouse, like downtown Vancouver. So I have no room for anything. Yeah. Um, and when I looked up how complicated it was to like make a ham, I was like, I don't have the room for this shit in the fridge for like a, but I will say that was delicious. I yeah. would do that again. Yeah. Um, I've had bacon had, too from bears and that would be like good. bear bacon's amazing. Yeah. I love it's the just, practicality of grind because it's just like, yeah. it's done. You pull out as much as you want. It thaws quick. It's easy yeah. to use. You can make burgers. You can make sausages. Yeah. You can make a meatloaf. You can put it in pasta. You can do, yeah. you can make sausages later on in the season if you feel like it. Like, yeah. yeah One thing with thing me I, too, like I'm cheap. There's no question. And like, I usually shoot six to 15 big game animals a year. So if I pay for someone to process my shit, it adds up when you're talking double digits of animals. So it all gets utilized. Like I give it to my family that doesn't hunt or whoever, but it's just, I do things I can do quick burger, stew meat, sausage, or a steak, whatever. A lot of the time. Okay. So this is good. So creative tips slash ideas for guys like me that use their phone as their sole camera. Hmm. I guess shy of because most of the newer cameras have like your wide angle, your zoom, kind of the whole range. Shy of using the whole range. Just don't try to follow the rules, like the rule of thirds or whatever. Like just break the traditional composition. And although there's a place to put your subject dead center, 90% of the time those photos look shitty. Like not trying to be harsh or anything, but especially for people that have not or developing their eye for it. A lot of the time they like to go dead center, even if it's that grip and grin, like you're holding the horns, whatever that does not always have to be dead center. Like throw that in the bottom left corner, tiny, even though it's a trophy shot and have the nice big mountainscape, like just look at things differently and just try to shoot differently than what you've seen. I think you, you dinged off two questions with once. Cause the same guy as next question was tips for taking photos uh, with downed game that are respectful, emotive, and yeah. interesting. Yeah. Like z- even with the iPhone, same thing. Like they have whatever, three or four power zoom, zoom in on the hand, holding that horn, zoom in on the hoof, the paw, the fur, like your hand on its body. It does not always have to be the whole scene or even the whole head, like cut off chunks of its head, cut off one antler and try to be a little more creative and artistic with it. Like, a trophy shot doesn't necessarily have to show the traditional trophy. I like that. Um, there's a half a dozen more there and we've gotten to the rest of them. What's, um, do you find it difficult to get your own hunting in with all the professional work? Like what's the year look like for you as far as your own hunts? It's always last place. Um, I always prioritize work over hunting just because I guess that's how I've always been just when it's time to work and there's work available, take it. But it's made me more effective on my personal hunting, like to get my whatever half a dozen animals I shot in 2020. I didn't even have crap, maybe 15 days into them total for all of them. So it's like, just, I guess it's kind of a benefit of being out there photographing these hunts year round. Like you dial your skill. Like, even if you're not the one pulling the trigger, you dial your stalking, your movement, your noise, your scent control, and just capitalizing on when and where to be. So, yeah, stuff like that definitely helps. But no, I would think on a like really good year, I might get 
two to three weeks of personal hunting in. Okay. So definitely not what it used to be. Yeah, this year's not, what do I got? I don't do the bear, I can do the sheep. And then I think maybe in the fall, um, I'm going to, I think I'm going to do archery moose. Mm-hmm. Um, they got that. It's new, a newer. I think this year might be the first year in the LEH. They opened up some, it used to be a rifle draw and they moved it to an archery draw. Um, yeah. A few areas, not too far from, from you actually. I put in for those. Yeah. A bunch in region six. They did that. Yeah. And it was tricky because there's a couple that still have some rifle tags, but then there's three or four units that have zero or just like one rifle tag. And I almost missed that at first. And I was in some of the other ones and I'm like, and that's what I'm primarily an archery hunter. And that's what kills me about hunting in BC is it's like, I don't mind that there's other hunters around. I can deal with that. But when you shoot a rifle and you nuke the whole area for five miles around, it's like, that's hard to deal with. It's tough yeah, competition. Totally. Um, yeah, it's oh, kind of an interesting one. Same thing coming from Alberta where September, October is all bow season to like here where at best you have 10 days. It's like, yeah, hard to justify. It's not the best 10 days either. People give me shit sometimes because I do a lot of hunting no, in, the, it in, sucks. The, in the States. Um, and I like going to uh, archery elk hunt in units where there's only other archery elk hunters. And I can't do that in the rut in British Columbia. Yeah. Just, yeah. Yeah, totally. Um, yeah, it's amazing how many people don't realize the opportunity out of province that British Columbians have if they're willing to travel. Like, for very affordably, like, do-it-yourself hunts. 100%, man. Yeah, people are like, how did you go hunt Wyoming? And I'm like, I drove there and bought a tag. And it's like, yeah. Wyoming's a little bit example. You need a couple points. Maybe it'll take a year or two, but it's like 50 yeah. bucks a year. It's like more yeah. of a paperwork pain in the ass than anything else. Like... Yeah, um, totally. It's, it's, it's shocking. And then you feel bad because people in the States are like, how can we hunt BC? And it's like, pay a guide because <laughs> we yeah. don't even let other Canadians in here. And that's yeah. the thing that pisses me off a little bit about home. Like I can't go to Alberta. I guess I could with a hunter host. Yeah. Um, but like that, the fact that we can't go hunt other provinces to me does seem to be a little bit ridiculous. I think if there's it's actually Canadian, a few. There's a few sure. we can do. Yeah. Like Saskatchewan, we could go do bear, moose, and whitetail without a guide or a host. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Ontario, you can do whitetails. Uh, yeah. There's a few anyway. It's okay. Never the whole province, but there is select hunts. If you dig into it, even across Canada, we can do. Gotcha. That's yeah. cool. That's cool. All right, man. Well, I want to be respectfully for your time. I really appreciate you coming on today. That was great to kind of dig into some more photography stuff. Um, yeah, totally. Just so everybody knows how can people follow you and kind of keep up to date with, with what you got going on? Um, basically Instagram is the best way. Just my name, Nick Traherne. And okay. yeah, same. If you ever want my website's the same thing, nickcherhern.com. I'm not really active on Facebook, but one of those two would probably be the best. Okay. Awesome. Thanks again, man. Really appreciate it. Awesome. Take care. All right. You too.